morning, Country Oaks. If we could find our seat, we're going to jump into the preaching of the word. This morning's passage will be Acts chapter 1, verses 4 to 11. So if you could please stand for the reading of God's word. Acts 1, 4 to 11. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when they had said these things, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and for the truth that's in it. I pray that you would uh, speak through me this morning, that you'd open up our hearts and our minds to what you have to say and to the truths about your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, I'm Zach Douglas. I'm the student ministries director here at Country Oaks. It's my pleasure to... uh, to preach this morning on the ascension of Christ. Last week, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, we talked about Jesus' resurrection, and he, he defeated sin and death, and, that's, and he did what was necessary for us to gain eternal life. That by his death and his resurrection, he has defeated sin and death. And the only thing is, is that, as you may know, uh, he is not walking around with us on earth today. And it wasn't that he died, um, he didn't die again, but it's because, as we saw in this passage already, that he ascended into heaven. He left us. He left his disciples there. As we saw, they were standing there, gazing into heaven, and then they were commissioned to go out. And the ascension is absolutely necessary. It was necessary that Christ would leave us because by doing so, Jesus would send us send the believers, the helper, the Holy Spirit to equip us to spread the gospel and so that he would return to the Father. So first, let's talk about the sending of the helper, the sending of the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, it says, And while he was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Jesus has resurrected. We know that the next steps for the gospel or for the kingdom would be to spread the gospel. So why did Jesus tell the disciples to wait? Why did he tell them to to not go out and to spread the gospel? Well, as he continues, we see why. It says, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The ones that followed John the Baptist were likely baptized uh, with water, and F.F. Bruce is commentating on this, and he says, John's baptism with water not only prepared his repentant hearers for the coming judgment, 
but also pointed them onto that spiritual baptism of which the prophets had spoken. John's baptism was a symbolic baptism. It didn't carry spiritual weight. It didn't It wasn't anything other than showing a repentant heart and pointing forward to Christ. Pointing forward to, as Joel, or as as they call it, the days of fulfillment that we see in Joel 2, 28 to 32. It says, "And And it shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the, very, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, among the survivors of those, shall be those whom the Lord calls. God's plan of salvation requires, it, it, it is necessary that the Holy Spirit be poured out onto believers. Which also requires that Jesus should ascend so that the Holy Spirit could be sent out. In this passage, we see a glimpse of the essential role of the Holy Spirit in salvation. Acts 1.5 says, You will be baptized not many days from now. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Notice this language that Jesus uses. It's a future baptism. It hasn't happened yet, so they have to wait for it. That's why they couldn't go out to Jerusalem. They had yet to be baptized by the Spirit. So what was holding him back? What was holding the Spirit from being poured out? In John 14, 16 to 17, it's, uh, Jesus is, is uh, talking to the disciples in the upper room. This is before his crucifixion. It's, it says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or, nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He's pointing forward to the baptism of the Spirit that we will see eventually in Acts 2. In John 16, 7 to 8, Jesus continues, and he goes back to talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. John 16, 7 is is kind of shocking to hear, right? Jesus says it is our advantage, it is best for us that he leaves. Before service, if if we were talking about this and I asked you if it was better that Jesus would stay or if he left or if you would have preferred if Jesus stayed, I'm sure we would all say that we would prefer it. We would love to walk with Jesus as the disciples walked with him. When we talk about heaven and the the end times, we talk about looking forward to spending our time with Christ, right? So it's shocking to hear that it is to our advantage. It is what's best. Sure, it might be good for us to have walked with Christ during his earthly ministry, but it is best that he ascends into heaven. Because if Jesus hadn't left, then the Spirit wouldn't have been sent. 
there would be no baptism of the Spirit. And if the Spirit isn't sent, then we don't experience the Christian life as we know it. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is essential for our lives. And now there's a lot of confusion because of Pentecostalism and these more charismatic uh, extreme movements. So we, we need to talk about what exactly the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. The first thing to know is that it is a common experience for all believers. It is not a supplement or an, or an extra experience that's reserved solely for mature or next-level Christians. It's not withheld from you and you have to earn it eventually. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Every believer in this room has been baptized by the Spirit. It is a common experience for all of us. We also know that it happens at the moment of salvation. In Acts 2, 37 to 38, this is Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost when the when they, the apostles had been baptized by the Holy Spirit, they're speaking in tongues. And, and Peter says to the people that were accusing them of being drunk or, or going crazy, he says, Acts 2, 37 to 38, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They'd heard the gospel, the people that, that knew of Jesus' crucifixion, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? How do we receive Christ? Verse 38, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. At the moment of salvation, we experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We also know that, that it incorporates believers into the body of Christ. In Acts 10, it's this chapter where Peter is experiencing uh, and growing in his knowledge of the gospel and that it does in fact spread to the Gentiles and it notes that the Holy Spirit was poured out on Gentiles who were listening to Peter. He saw the Holy Spirit descend on them. So we know that it incorporates believers into Christ in that 1 Corinthians passage, it says that we were, we were in one spirit, in one body that we are all the body of Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, if we are in Christ. The Holy Spirit also seals our salvation, that our membership into the body is permanent. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That the Holy Spirit has sealed us for our salvation. That we know that we cannot lose our salvation as believers. That should be an encouragement to us. That even when we continue to stumble in sin, that we know that we have been sealed. That our membership is permanent. No one can pluck us from the hands of the Father. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit finally sanctifies us. That he is our guide, that he points us to Christ. That he has a role in salvation and sanctification. 
that at the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we gain the fruit of the Spirit. And in the Greek, in, in that passage in Galatians, that is one fruit. It's not multiple fruits that are given out and dispersed like the gifts of the Spirit are, but every single believer is given the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. We all gain all of those things. So the the baptism of the Spirit is, is a common experience. It happens at the moment of salvation, incorporates all of us into the body of Christ. It seals our salvation, and through it, he sanctifies us. Through it, we are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Without the ascension of Christ, none of this would have been given to us. Remember what Jesus says in John 16. He leaves so that the Holy Spirit is sent out to us. He ascends to the throne of the Father so that we receive this gift. So as believers, what do we do with this? How do we live our daily lives knowing that we have been baptized by the Holy Spirit? It's simple in word, hard to to do in action, but we respond to the Spirit. We respond to the promptings that he gives us. We too, like unbelievers, which we'll talk about in a second, respond to him guiding us. The Holy Spirit guides us to live righteously. He convicts us of our sins, shows us where we need to continue to grow. He does that through our guilt, but also through God's word. That as we read God's word, he illuminates it to us showing us where we need to continue to grow. So we depend upon the Spirit. He also equips us for righteousness. He's given us the fruit of the Spirit so that we can grow in Christ-likeness, but he has also given us giftings to serve the church. He's gifted us so that we can continue to grow the kingdom of God. Now, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, there is also an application for you. Your application is, is to respond to the Spirit's conviction in faith. To respond to the gospel that that God is the creator of heaven and earth. He is holy, righteous, just, loving, merciful, and gracious. And we have sinned against this God. We have fallen short of righteousness. And because, as Romans uh, 6 says, the wages of sin is death, we have been punished for our sins. That what's coming for us is death and death in eternity. We have been separated from God because we have sinned against him. But God sent his son, we celebrated this last week. God sent his son to earth so that he would die for our sins and that by putting our faith in him, we would receive the eternal gift of salvation. Jesus died, was resurrected, showing his, his defeat of sin and death, and he has ascended to the throne of God so that, so that he would be our ruler and our Lord. Today is the day of salvation. Respond in faith to the prompting of the Spirit and receive the free gift of eternal life. The Holy Spirit is our guide and our convictor and our sanctifier. Learn to respond to the Spirit daily. God has given to him to us for a reason. Another reason that God has given him to us other than our salvation and our sanctification is found in Acts 1.6, and that's really to spark the spread of the kingdom of God. 
So Acts 1.6, so when they had come together, this is the disciples and Jesus, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now at this point, Jesus has been resurrected and he has been with his, his followers for 40 days, teaching them about the kingdom of God, what comes next, the prophets pointing them to how it, how it all pointed to him. And so this question is actually appropriate. Most of the time when we're reading the Gospels, we come across a moment where uh, the disciples are arguing who's going to be the greatest, or they see Jesus still as this conquering king, and we might see this in, in a similar light as when we read the, those moments and kind of groan and be like, oh, this again? They still don't get it? But the disciples aren't just caught up in this again. Jesus has been resurrected. He defeated sin and death. So of course they would, they would think that he's going to come as their conquering king. He's talking about the kingdom of Israel and the restoration that was promised to them in the Old Testament. So this question is not as ridiculous as we might think. But the disciples still don't get it. There's still a misperception about what the coming of Christ meant, even after more teaching of, that comes from Jesus. But the, Jesus responds gently to them. He gently corrects them. His kingship is obviously a topic, and what he says is found in verse 7. He says, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus says, it's not for you to know about this. This is for the Father. You have a different job. You have a role to play in the restoration and expansion of the kingdom of God. So I'm going to pull a page out of the Nathan Heiner preaching playbook and give some ob observations about Jesus' response. So the first observation is that our believers, our primary concern is not eschatology, but it is the spread of the gospel. Eschatology is the study of the end times, the study of when Jesus comes back, the timing of it, is it, is it pre-tribulation, is it post, what's the, what's the millennial kingdom, it's the study, and it's important, the study of the end times, but it is not our primary focus. Jesus is basically saying that his victorious return is not something for them to get focused on. Because they, and us by extension, have a different job. He's saying, let God be in control of the final days and focus on what you can do in the here and now. F.F. F. Bruce says, whatever purposes, of his own, whatever purposes of his own God might have for the nation of Israel, these were not to be the, con the concern of the messengers of Christ. The kingdom which they were commissioned to proclaim was the good news of God's grace in Christ. This is for us as well. Talking about the end times can be exciting and invigorating, but if it's a distraction of the gospel, then we have lost sight of what Jesus has called us to. Having an understanding about what the Bible says about Jesus' return in the new heavens and new earth is important. It's important for us but it is not our focus. For many of us, Jesus could say the same thing. He could say to us as well, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed. Instead, go and proclaim the gospel. 
Instead, we have a job of our own just as the disciples did. So that's the first observation, that the gospel is our primary concern. The second observation is that the Holy Spirit is guaranteed. Verse 8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This power is guaranteed for believers. We've already talked about the baptism of the Spirit, so we won't spend much more time here. But know that, that receiving power, both gifts and the fruit of the Spirit, is a guarantee upon our salvation. The disciples had to wait, but that is not the norm for us today. We don't have to wait. We experience it at the moment of salvation. So the Holy Spirit is guaranteed, and that brings us to a third observation, that the Holy Spirit is essential, necessary, and a prerequisite for the spread of the gospel. The salvation of sinners and the growth of the church cannot happen without the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He equips us with a new heart and a new spirit. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The Holy Spirit is essential for us to proclaim the kingdom. He prompts us for evangelism. He enables us with giftings. He enables salvation of those who are hearing the gospel. He convicts of sin. That's what John, in John 16, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will convict of sin. He regenerates heart. That's what that Ezekiel passage I just read was talking about. And he is a, he is a part of justification. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, You were justified in the name of, of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The Holy Spirit justifies us before God. Put simply, without the enabling of the Holy Spirit, the kingdom would not grow. And that's why it is essential that, that he comes and he comes to us. The fourth observation is that the focus should be on the spread of the gospel, not on anything else. Jesus commands the disciples in, in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in, Judea, in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Nothing else should hinder the gospel. Anything else can be a distraction. And that doesn't mean all we focus on is evangelism. And discipleship plays an important role in the spread of the kingdom. But we can't lose sight of the mission of the church. We are to be going out and spreading the gospel. The disciples were not to get caught up in the return of Christ and what that was going to look, at, look like. They were to get caught up in spreading the gospel. R.C. Sproul says the mission of the church, the reason we exist, is to bear witness to the present reign and rule of Christ, who is at the right hand of God. We are witnesses of the reign and rule of Jesus. And the disciples understood this. This shortened version of the, of the Great Commission that we see in Acts 1.8 could really be a table of contents for the book of Acts 
that they start in Jerusalem, and then they spread to Judea and Samaria, and then they spread to the end of the earth. We see in the book of Acts the gospel being spread out. So we know that the disciples understood. They understood their role. And that the book of Acts is called Acts because it's titled the Acts of the Apostles. But it could really be titled titled, the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. We see the role of the Holy Spirit in the spread of the gospel through the book of Acts. And it was the coming of the Holy Spirit that sparked this spread of the gospel. One commentator calls, called the Holy Spirit the dynamo of God working in and through his church. That the, we, the disciples experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit and then the gospel spread like wildfire, changing, the, really changing history and the, the way that the world was going. The Holy Spirit was essential and is essential for the spread of the kingdom of God. And we cannot let anything distract us from this being our primary focus as a church. Obviously, that goes for bad things like sins, that we we, uh, address sins in our lives and in the sins of others, but that even goes for good things. Good things cannot take the place of the best things, the spreading of the kingdom. We don't let sins be a distraction in our own lives. That's why we kill our sins, because our sins can hinder how we spread the gospel. But we also don't let the good things take place of the best things. Once we lose sight of the gospel, everything else crumbles. The gospel and the spread of the kingdom is our primary focus. So that begs the question, how does the church keep the spread of the kingdom as its primary focus? How do we as a congregation keep the spread of the gospel as our primary focus? And the way we do that is by partaking in the expansion of the kingdom, by participating in the spread of the kingdom. And that starts, one, with evangelism. If someone were to ask you right now, can you share the gospel with me? Would you be confident in what you were going to say? Would you be confident in sharing what you believe as a Christian? We should all be prepared for a one-minute gospel presentation. That doesn't mean you have to only share the gospel in a minute. We could, I mean, we talk about it every week. We could go deep on the gospel, but we should be ready to share it in as as little time as possible. Also be be prepared for longer and be willing to say, I don't know, I can answer that for you, but I'm going to have to look it up but all of us should be prepared to share the gospel. Parents, are you, are you able to share the gospel with your kids? When was the last time you say, shared the gospel with your unsaved kids? What about with your, with your saved kids? It's an encouragement to believers to hear the gospel. When was the last time you shared the gospel with your unsaved coworkers, with your unsaved family, or your unsaved friends? Is the gospel, the spread of the gospel, your primary focus? So the the first way is personal evangelism. Another way that we can keep the gospel as our primary focus is by participating in cross-cultural work, by sending cross-cultural workers well. 
by training them up, by supporting them in financially, in prayer, by welcoming them back when they, when they come back to our church, or by being sent. We talk about sending well a lot, but being sent for the sake of the gospel is just as important. Don't be turned off to, to going and proclaiming the gospel to the nations. Don't be turned off from your kids going and proclaiming the gospel to the nations. It's, it can be scary, but it is how we participate in the spread of the kingdom. So the first way we participate is through evangelism, both personally and by participating in cross-cultural work. But we also participate in the expansion of the kingdom through discipleship, through the building up of the saints. It's clear in scripture that we don't just spread the gospel and, and lose sight of what's going on with our fellow members of the church. Discipleship is an essential role. Ephesians 4 talks about the importance of the building up of the saints for the works of service that we come alongside one another and train each other up. That's what we do on Sunday mornings. One great way that we build up the saints is through the Sunday morning worship service. Obviously, the focus is on worship and praising God, but through preaching and teaching of the word, worship happens in well. It's not just in song and praise, which are important, but it's also through the preaching and the teaching of the word. And it's not just for the purpose of head knowledge, head knowledge creating theological eggheads or Bible thumpers, but it's so that we can grow in our relationship with God. The greater we understand God, the, the deeper our relationship with him is, and the better we worship him. One of the biggest reasons we see incorrect worship of God is because there is a lack of knowledge of who God is. And the deeper we grow in relationship with him, the better we understand how he has commanded us to worship him. Most of my spiritual and theological growth came through what I learned from my church, not necessarily what I learned when I got my master's degree. My seminary degree deepened my knowledge even further, but most of what I know comes from what I learned in this church comes from the discipleship that I received growing up in a Christian home. So we should be seeking to disciple one another. The building up of the church is essential for proper evangelism. Because when we know God better, we, we proclaim the gospel even better. Not only that, but through discipleship comes conviction of sin. Our fellow Christians see sins in our lives that we aren't aware of, that we have blind spots for. So it's important that we open up ourselves to being discipled by other people. So we participate in the growth of the kingdom through evangelism and through discipleship. And so far, at this moment, the ascension of Christ has shown us that Jesus' ascension was essential for the Holy Spirit, for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which then sparked the spread of the kingdom. And that brings us to our third point. The ascension returned Jesus to the Father. Acts 1.9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. Jesus was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, 
Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And just like that, after 40 days of teaching, Jesus has returned. The disciples probably were hoping that he would stay with them. Jesus leaves them. He tells them all that is, is sufficient for them to spread the kingdom, and then he returns to the Father. He goes up, and he goes up, and a, and a cloud takes, the, takes him out of their sight. And their reaction is gazing, staring, transfixed on, on looking at where Jesus was, was ascending. And it could have been, uh, could have been worshipful that they were, they were praising his name. They could have been confused, like, where, where is he going? He just came back to us. Or even expecting him to return. During this time, Jesus appeared and reappeared and, and disguised or hid, his, hid himself from them on the walk to Emmaus. So maybe they thought he was going to return. But instead, Jesus, is, it says, is enveloped by clouds. And as we've seen in Exodus, this, this symbolism that comes from the clouds is divine. That we see it's a sign of God's presence, his approval, and his glory. So Jesus is enveloped by clouds, a sign of God's approval of him and his glory, and then he ascends to the right hand of the Father, just as he told us he would do, just as he told the disciples that he would do. I mean, this moment is monumental for the church. It should cause us to, to respond in praise and worship. We've already talked about the role that it plays with the sending of the Holy Spirit, how essential that is for us, but it also marks the, the last time Jesus walked on earth in the flesh and marks the moment that he returns to the right hand of the Father. It is to our advantage that Jesus went, not just because of the Holy Spirit, but because of what Jesus is doing right now, today. When Jesus returns to the right hand of the Father, he's not just going up to relax and hang out in the throne room. He's going up to, to take on his role as ruler and mediator on our behalf. It's similar to, to what happens with Joseph with Pharaoh. Joseph, Joseph is in the dungeon. His, his two fellow cellmates forgot about him when, when they returned to Pharaoh. And eventually Pharaoh hears of his... his uh, interpretation of dreams, and he goes to Pharaoh, is raised up to the right hand of Pharaoh, and is second in command over the most powerful nation in the world. And because of that, he saves his own family, which led to the, to the growth of the people of God, which led to what we've been studying for the past however long in Exodus. Jesus' ascension to the Father is similar to that, but on a much, much larger and more important scale for us. By being raised to the right hand of the Father, Jesus now acts as both our ruler and our mediator. Colossians 1, 15 to 18 says, He, talking about Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And when it says firstborn there, it's not talking that, saying that Jesus was created, but he is, he is in the role of the firstborn, that everything belongs to him. Culturally, that when, when the father dies, the firstborn gains everything. So that's what, what it's saying here, that Jesus is the heir to all things. 
the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, <clears throat> excuse me, in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In everything, Jesus is preeminent. And that's, that's why he returned to the right hand of the Father. Everything is in the hands of Christ. Rulers, authorities, the powers of this world, they have been placed there by Christ, and they answer, they will answer to him alone. And yet we can be confident because of this, when their presence, even the presence of these, the rulers of this world breeds uncertainty in our lives. When we don't know what's going to happen in our country or in our, in our state or in the world because of who is sitting in office or on their thrones, depending on the nation, because of that, we might be uncertain, but because of where Christ is, because he ascended, we can still have confidence that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and all answer to him and him alone. So we should be confident because Jesus ascended. It was this truth that led the Christians at this time in, in the time of the apostles, but also throughout history, to be bold even when they were persecuted. Because they understood who Jesus was and what he's doing now that he is at the right hand of the Father, that he is our ruler, but also our mediator, meaning he is the one that stands between us and God. In 1 Timothy 2.5, it says, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.11-15 says, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that, had come, that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once, once for all into, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus secure, securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to, this, to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus is our mediator. A few weeks ago, we, we were in the golden calf in Exodus, and Moses, we saw, mediated for Israel on their behalf when God said that he was going to decimate them and start a new nation through, through Moses. If you have questions about that, you can listen to Nathan's sermon from a few weeks ago. But that right there, when, when, uh, when Moses is reminding God of all of his promises he was acting as mediator. And Jesus does the same for us. He brings our prayers to God. He stands between God and man 
as, his, as both king and mediator. Jesus is the one who has gone before the Father on our behalf, bought our salvation by his blood, and now stands between us and God so that we would have salvation. And I don't want to paint this picture that, that God's wrath is just coming at us and Jesus is standing in between us. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world and because of that, he sent Christ. Because he loved us so much, he put Christ as our mediator. It is out of love that God did that. We worship Christ because of where he is now and what he has done for us. We should be encouraged by the fact that Jesus is standing on our behalf. Be encouraged by the fact that Christ stands on your behalf before God. That he did what was necessary for the wrath of God to be turned from us that he will return again in the same way as he went into heaven. That's why we sing that he is coming on the clouds. Kings and kingdoms will bow down. He will come back to judge the earth, to save his people, and to make all things new. But that promise is only for believers. If you have not put your faith in Christ, that promise is not for you. Jesus does not stand as your mediator until you put your faith in him. Without Christ, there would be no one standing before God on our behalf. And if we are in, aren't, are not in Christ, then there is no one standing before God on your behalf. And that's the application for us. If you haven't put your faith in Christ, put your faith in him. Trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But if you have put your faith in Christ, be confident that he is before God on your behalf so we can boldly go before the throne of God because we know that Jesus is standing there for us. We can be confident regardless of what is happening in this world because Christ is ruling at the right hand of the Father. Because he ascended from heaven or from earth into heaven. And that's to our advantage. It's for our good. It is the best thing for us. So believer, be confident in Christ. He is the one who is in control over all things and rest in the fact that regardless of who is on the throne or in office here on earth, Jesus is still in control. That's why every year you see on social media, we say to one another when, when there's elections or every four years when there's elections, we say Jesus is still king whether the person we voted for is in office or they are not in office. Jesus is king on the throne. All of this, the sending of the Holy Spirit which sparks the spread of the gospel and Jesus returning to the right hand of the Father as ruler and mediator show that the ascension is essential. That Jesus going up in a cloud was essential for our faith for us today. I mean, we pretty quickly see the results of this. One chapter later, Acts 2, the day of Pentecost happens where the, the Holy Spirit descends on the apostles, they're speaking in tongues, they're preaching the gospel in tongues, and on that day, 3,000 souls were saved. People who had yelled at Christ, crucify him when Pilate was before them saying, well, you could either have this known murderer or you can have Jesus. And they say, crucify Jesus, we want Barabbas. 
Those people heard the gospel and were saved that day. Then we see the gospel spread to all Judea and all Samaria and spread throughout the entire Roman Empire because of the enabling of the Spirit and the confidence that, that the, the apostles had in Christ and because of what Jesus was doing as ruler over all creation. So because of the ascension, we can fully commit to partaking in the spread of gospel, of the gospel. We can fully commit to partaking in the spread of the kingdom. So in light of the ascension, don't lose sight of what God has called us to, a mission that has been continuing for thousands of years and continues to this day. Be confident when you proclaim the gospel, knowing that it's not your words that convict someone, but it is the Holy Spirit that convicts of sin and that Jesus is in control. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and, and what it enables us to do through your Holy Spirit. I pray that we would not lose sight of good things, but that we would stay focused on the best thing, the spread of your kingdom. Enable us today to, to share the gospel with that person that has been on our hearts. Give us boldness and the right words to speak. And I pray that as we go out from here, that we would be fully committed to what you have called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.